Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Last time, Miss Theresa, that you were with us, <clears throat> I misspoke from the uh, pulpit, and I said, uh, in an attempt to say one thing, I said something else. I was speaking of how much I loved you, and I said uh, that you were the only pastor's wife that my wife was second to. Uh, I meant to say you were only second to my wife. Uh, And so uh, my wife said, well, maybe you should just push Russ out of the way and marry her if she's so good at it. And I said... uh, I said, well, maybe you should learn to, pe- learn to play the piano, and you might slide. Uh, no, I said, honey, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. And she pulled out her phone and opened up the Facebook app and said, well, let's just listen. And, and that's what I said. So uh, I knew what I meant, too. Thank you. Uh, and, and yeah, I didn't get no supper, and I'd sleep on the couch. For, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Um, you can look at me and tell if she don't cook supper, I'll find it summers. But, um, and now you're here for me to correct myself, and my wife is at the nursing home, so I don't know. Uh, so all of you help me out and, and tell my wife uh, that I did uh, mention her this morning. I'm sure you will. Of all the people that I need vouching for me, Danny Allen's top of the list. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12 will be in the first 15 verses this morning. The title of this morning's message is, I am the man. I am the man. Now, I'm not bragging when I say that. I'm not telling you how good I am. I'm not giving you a high opinion of myself. But you'll see as we dive through this message what I mean by I am the man. And we dive into this subject. It's dealing with sin in our lives. While it's not an enjoyable topic, it's a necessary topic for a believer to approach in our own lives. The, the simple fact is that the truth according to scriptures is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that after coming to Christ, we will continue to deal with the struggle between the fleshly man, the worldly man, and the spiritual man. Uh, even Paul says, I struggle to do the things that I know I want to do, but I don't have any problem doing the things that I don't want to do. And he's referencing the fact that even though I want to serve Christ and I want to be obedient and I want to be sinless and I want to be blameless, I find it so much easier to continue to sin and give in to my flesh. And so if we know that we're going to fall short of God's calling on us and God's will for us, if we know that we're going to let each other down, if we know that we're going to do things that we shouldn't do and that we're going to not do things that we should do, then we better understand the act of confession and repentance as believers. So if you would, if you're able this morning in the house, please stare in honor and reverence for the reading of the holy words of God from 2 Samuel chapter 12. The first 15 verses. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing 
except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom as it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus said the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son and so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have been given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his house. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning reading a text that should be weighty in the lives of all believers. It should stir in the souls of your people, Lord God. And so God, I ask that even now, you would speak to us. That you would be glorified. That we would be purified. And that your name would be magnified. For it is in your precious name that we pray as all of God's children said. Amen. And you may be seated. Now, we find ourselves in a place in King David's life where it's been about a year since his whole debacle with Bathsheba had taken place. Uh, just so we know where we're at, for those of us who are wondering what I'm saying, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh... One day David had wandered out upon his roof. Most of you know the story, but just to be clear. And he looked out and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he had such a lust uh, for Bathsheba that he sent for her to come to him, even though it was revealed to him who she was and who her husband was and that she was a married woman. And so he sent for her and she came to him and lay with him and then... Uh, he got word a short time later that because of their act, Bathsheba had become pregnant. 
And so David began to attempt to cover his sin. And so he said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to send for the Hittite Uriah to come back into the camp. And when he gets here, I'm going to give him the freedom to go to his house. Surely he'll lay with his wife. And in a few months, when she has a baby, no one will be any the wiser that it wasn't Uriah's child. And so he does that. He sends for Uriah, and Uriah comes in, and he entertains Uriah, and he says, Now go to your house and take rest with your wife. But Uriah won't do it. He lays on the steps of the king's house and, and David tries to push him and Uriah says look I can't go and lay in my own bed and be with my own wife while all the other valiant warriors are out laying in tents in a war I can't I can't do that it's not right I, I, if I'm going back to war I can't be here and do this thing and so when David couldn't cover his sin in that way he came up with an even more devious plan didn't he he said, Joab, I want you to take Uriah the Hittite. I want you to take him to the hottest battle on the very front line where things are the most dangerous, and then I want you to pull the other troops back. I want you to leave him there by himself fighting against the most valiant warriors from the other side. And, of course, Uriah was killed. David then brought Bathsheba into his house, and she became his wife. They had a son. And that's where chapter 11 leaves off at the end of verse 27. David has done this devious act. He sent this man off to be killed. He's taken his wife in and no one is the wiser to what really happened in that time. But between chapter 11 verse 27 and chapter 12 verse 1 we have basically a year, perhaps slightly more, slightly less, but basically a year has passed by, and it seems that David has gotten away with it. It seems like David has, has, has come up with this, this devious plan, and he's put it into action, and it's worked to perfection, and David seems to have gotten away with this thing that he had done. And there were only a few people that had any inkling of what had gone on. And those who did, because he was the king and they were loyal, they would never say anything anyway. And so he was safe from the public scrutiny. And that brings us to our first point this morning, and it's this. There is a deceit with which we live. A year has gone by, and Nathan comes to David by the beckoning of the Lord, and he begins to tell him a story. And David, while he's listening to this story, has no idea that it has a deeper meaning. Nathan says, listen, there were two guys in a city, David. One was rich and he had everything. One was poor and he had nothing. But, but the man that had nothing, he, he did have one little thing. He had this one little lamb and he, he bought it as a baby. He raised it. He fed it. He nurtured it. He loved it. He treated it as if it was his own child. He even thought of it as if it was a daughter. But King David, let me tell you what happened. A traveler came to town, weary from the road. And in that time, what would have been customary is if a traveler came through weary from the road, you would feed them and you would give them lodging. You would give them a place to stay. And so the rich man, when the traveler came to him, rather than go and getting his own lamb from the plenty of his flock, said, instead, I'm going to go take the one lamb that the poor man has. And he takes it and he slays it and he uses it to feed the man. Now, David, here's this story. And becomes furious. I cannot believe that anybody would do such a thing. 
The rich man shall die. He'll be killed. He'll restore fourfold to the poor man for the lamb that he lost. Now, of course, there is some imagery in this story I want to point out to us. As with many Old Testament stories, we have a picture from Nathan's story of something else. The two men represented in this story are Uriah and David. David being the rich man who had everything as the king. Uriah being the poor man that had little. It's also been suggested by some commentators and some theologians that perhaps even the, the, the two men are represented in the mindset between the spiritual man and the worldly man. So there's a lot of things in this story that are going on, but... But if you look at David as the rich man and you look at Uriah as the poor man, you begin to realize that, that David had everything. He had concubine of his own. He had plenty of women at his disposal that had been given to him to fulfill the lust. And then you have the traveler that comes to town and that represents the temptation that comes sweeping into the rich man's life. And so David, upon being tempted by the temptation, had plenty of ways for him to feed the lust that came along with this temptation. But David doesn't notice the correlation in the story, does he? David simply says that rich man is despicable, doesn't he? That rich man is sick. There's something wrong with that man that he would do such a thing. And many of us, as we sit here this morning, think to ourselves, what's the matter with King David? But I believe if we would be honest, we would find ourselves very similar when it comes to our own sin. You see, we get so comfortable with our sin. We get so infatuated with our sin. We get so holy in our pew that we begin to forget that our sin even exists, don't we? We began to say, that's not really sin. Let me just cover it up. If I can cover it up and hide it from the preacher, then it didn't happen. If I can cover it up and, and hide it from my friends, then it didn't happen. If I can cover it up and hide it from my Sunday school teacher, then I don't have to deal with it. It's, it's not really there anymore. And we come up with schemes and, and devious plans to cover our sin up and bury it as far down as we can bury it and pretend even that it doesn't exist. David had been a year. Now, I'm sure he still felt some guilt and some remorse, but after a year, I also say that he probably felt some relief that he had kind of gotten away with this thing, right? But there's one fundamental problem with David's thought process and with ours on hiding sin. The Bible teaches us that we serve an omniscient God who knows everything. So we can hide it from each other, but we can't hide it from him. Look at what verse 1 tells us that. Then, who sent Nathan? The Lord. I forgot the screens weren't up. Some of you didn't have your scriptures in front of you. Then the Lord sent Nathan. You see, David had hidden his sin... For a year. Who is it? It's Nathan, David. Okay, I'll be right there. None the wiser of what was fixing to hit him in the face. No clue of what was fixing to happen. But the Lord 
sent Nathan. The man of God was sent by God to speak to David. So even though David had gotten away with it from, with men, God was fixing to ring his bell. Now keep in mind, though, it's not King David that we're really talking about this morning. It's us. Every single one of us have something in our lives that we have coddled and we've rubbed and we've comforted and we've hidden and we've placed deep down in that spot and we've raked the dirt over top of it and we've sowed the grass over the top of it and we think that because we've hidden it from everybody else that it no longer matters. But my friend, the fact of the matter is that any unrepented sin in the believer's life is not acceptable. It separates us from what God has called us to do. It keeps us from fulfilling the purpose that God has for us. Yes, you can still come to church. Yes, you may still be able to preach a sermon. You may still be able to teach a class. But at the end of the day, my friend, that sin that you've got covered up, if you have not confessed it to your holy God and said, God, please forgive me of that sin, it still pulls you down. David may have hidden it from everyone. He may have stayed king. But he was not fulfilling God's calling on his life because he had unrepented sin in his life. For the believer, for the believer, for the true believer, we can't bury our sin and forget about it because it pulls and it nags. And it comes back around in the form of a knock on the door when we least expect it. And we have to face it. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we're going along convincing ourselves and convincing others that our sin is not sin and that it's okay, the Lord sends us a declaration. And that's our second point this morning is that he sends us a declaration that is required. Verse 7 is kind of the theme and the title for the message this morning. David's moving along. He thinks everything's fine. Nathan tells him the story. David's anger is roused, which just lets us know that he wasn't thinking about his sin anymore. And in verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan says, brother, you're the man. God anointed you king. He delivered you from your enemy. He gave you everything. If you had lacked anything, he would have gotten you more. And you still had to kill Uriah and have his wife because all the things that you had wouldn't fulfill your lusts. And friends, if David had had any inclination that he had gotten away with his sin before, I think right now he was starting to come to the conclusion that he was wrong. He was coming to the conclusion he was wrong. The Lord says, David, your sin's going to bring adversity to your house. Your wives will be given to your neighbors, and it's not going to happen quietly the way you did it. It's going to happen in front of everybody. Everybody's going to see what this thing you did was. All this was going to come to fruition. If you look forward, beginning in chapter 13, you begin to see that, that he has uh, one of his children rape their half-sister. He's going to see later in chapter 16 that his son Absalom sleeps with some of his wives publicly in the place. Everybody knows what's going on. The words of the Lord are going to come to fruition for David. Granddaddy used to say the chickens are going to come home and roost, right? It's going 
to happen. Your sin is going to be revealed. And for the believer, that should shake us to our very core. But doesn't God do this thing for us, this declaration? Doesn't he give it to us? We think we hide our sin. We think we're getting away with it. We think we've put one over on everybody. And we think we've covered everything up so well. And then God sends us some conviction, doesn't he? He sends us something either through a, a message or a class or a, or, or, or a song that we hear or, or whatever. The Holy Spirit just kind of pecks on us and says, you know what you did was wrong. You know what you didn't do you should have done. You know where you should, you know you shouldn't be watching this. You know you shouldn't be doing this. But we say, I got this, right? We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning a little bit. Right? It doesn't ever start. Usually with both feet in on the sin, usually it starts by looking at something and going, I can touch that, it's okay. And then we touch it. And we say, well, I can touch it but not grab it. And after we've touched it a time or two, we say, well, that didn't hurt us, we'll grab it. And then we say, well, I can grab it but I I don't have to hold it, I can just grab it for a minute. But then once we grab it and hold it, we say, well, I can hold it but not eat it. And before you know it, we forget that touching it in the first place was where we slipped. Right? That's the way sin plays in our life. But you know what? For the believer, if you'll just be honest with yourself, you'll realize that every time you reach out to touch it, God says, you shouldn't do that. You know you shouldn't do that. But we become so comfortably numb that we just move on and we take another step away from God's will in our life. And before you know it, there's this great chasm between what you know you ought to be and what you are. As a believer, instead of saying, I'm the man, like we got this, we've got to come to the point where we say, I am the man. I'm the one that's sinning. I I'm the one who has affronted my holy God. I'm the one who's come short of his glory. I'm the one who has done this. And we should be so shaken to our core that we say to ourselves, not how is this affecting me, how is this hurting me, but we would say, how can I do this to my holy God? How in the world could I do this knowing what God has done for me? There's a deceit with which we live. There's a declaration that's required, but... Praise God, there's a confession that sets us free. There's a confession that sets us free. Look at verse 13 with me. David finally, after a year, comes to the point where he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He's finally come to this place where he says, I can't hide this anymore. I've sinned. Can't do this anymore. I want you to notice that when David come to this place, verse 13 doesn't read that David said to Nathan, close that door so no one hears this. He didn't say to Nathan, Nathan, I need you to make sure that you keep this between me and you. You're a man of God. This is a private conversation. 
He didn't say, let me look around and make sure that nobody else is listening, nobody else is going to hear it. No, when David was confronted with his sin and he realized the magnitude of his sin, he said, I can't do this anymore. I don't care who's watching. I don't care who's listening. I have sinned against the Lord. It's true. Everything you just said, Nathan, it's true. It's worse than that, Nathan. You don't know the inward parts of me the way God does. You don't know all the conviction that I walked through as I did these things. And I am so overcome with grief for the fact that I am capable of doing that to my holy God. And you know, that is the thing about a true confession and a true repentance. Is once you are truly broken and truly repentant, you don't really care who sees it or what they think. You're no longer concerned with how do I spin this that man thinks I'm okay. You say, I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. i got to get right with God. Can't tell you how many times that I've had conversations with people that I know the whole time we're talking, their wheels are turning. It's how they can tell me this story in such a way that I don't think less of them. And usually about halfway through, I say, listen, you need to stop. And you need to understand that I'm the chief of sinners in my own eyes. And there's nothing you could tell me that's going to make me think less of you. But if you don't confront this sin for what it is in your life, you might as well not be sitting here talking to me. You've got to come to the place where you say, I am the man I've sinned. Against the Lord. Not what I've done to anybody else. Not what anybody else has done to me. But what I have done to sin against the Lord. Nathan says to David. The Lord has put away your sin. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that statement in itself beautiful for the believer? That if we would confess our sins before a holy God, he is faithful and just, that he would forgive us those sins, cast away our unrighteousness. It says he cast them as far as the east is from the west. There's freedom in that statement, isn't there? That if we would just confess our sins, if we would just get broken to the point that we say, I've, I've sinned against a holy God, God is faithful to forgive us those sins. And you say, that's a great story. That's a good place to stop the sermon, Brother Jason, and I'd love to. However, we still got to deal with verse 14, don't we? David, your sin has given your enemies a way to blaspheme against God. Your child will die. Well, that doesn't sound very freeing, Brother Jason. You just messed up your third point. You said it's the confession that sets us free, but his child died. And you're right, it doesn't seem very freeing in our own eyes, but I want you to think about this. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God sets us free from the consequences of what we've already done. It says he sets us free from the burden of our sin debt to God. Your sin still has consequences on this earth. But if you're forgiven, those consequences pale in comparison to the sweetness of heaven 
and the sweetness of forgiveness. The death of David's child represents a picture of the fact that as children of God, the sins that we commit have lasting, permanent consequences. But praise God. Just because my sins on this earth have lasting, permanent consequences on this earth, I don't have to carry that burden. I can be forgiven. And yes... The murderer who murders the man still has to face that jail sentence. But if he confesses God, he's just as saved as the little boy that grew up in church. And heaven is just as sweet for him. But he doesn't get saved that third year of his sentence and they don't cast the last 30 out. He still has the consequences of that sin. We can be set free from the burden of our sin and that's the sweetness for a child of God. We don't have to carry that burden. So what, what do we do with this text this morning? It's not a fun text. It's not exciting. We, we didn't get to you know, necessarily preach about the blind man seeing or the, the, the paralytic man walking or some of those exciting texts where we can jump up and down and look at the power of God. But wait a minute. Yes, we can. We can look at an even greater power of God, and that's that the sinner can be set free. And that's better than any blind man seeing or any lame man walking right there. That a sinner can be set free. First, we need to quit playing games, church. We need to quit pretending that our sin isn't sin. We need to quit pretending that someone else's sin is worse than our own. We need to quit looking at what others are doing and start looking at who we are and what we are doing. And recognize that our sin is an affront to a holy God. We got to be more serious about holiness than we are about happiness. Can't be about how does this make me feel or what do I want. It's got to be about how does this glorify God and how is he magnified through this. If we're going to be a people that honor Christ, we got to feel the same way about our sin as God does. It's what confession is. It's saying, God, I see my sin the same way you do as a filthy affront to your holiness. We need to hear the declaration of the conviction that says, you don't need to do that anymore. That's sin in your life. You don't, need to, you don't need to carry that anymore. You don't need to go there anymore. You don't need to watch that anymore. You don't need to tell that story. That's gossip. You don't need to do that. You don't need to talk to somebody else. You need to go talk to the one you got a problem with. You don't need to tell this, this negative story. You don't need to spin that this way. You don't need to talk about what they're doing. We've got to become more serious about holiness than we do about happiness. This event in 2 Samuel leads to the confession of David in Psalm 51. And for the sake of time... Even though I'd like to read it, I'm going to ask you to read it in your own time, but I'm going to pull some things out because the events in 2 Samuel chapter 15 lead us to David in Psalms chapter 51 as he says these words. Have mercy on me, God, because against you and you alone I have sinned. I acknowledge my transgressions. He goes on to say, purge me with hyssop. Give me joy, God, 
and help me hear gladness that my broken bones might rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, God, because a broken and contrite heart you will not turn away and despise. David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Is your joy missing this morning? Is your joy missing this morning? If so, maybe what's really missing from your life is a time of confession and a time of repentance like David had. Because that's where the joy comes from, is drawing near to a holy God. Maybe we should kneel down instead of standing up. Maybe we should take a little ownership of our own problems. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming somebody else. And stand like David and say, I am the man. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning looking at such a weighty topic. God, our sin against your holiness that separates us, Lord God. Our sin, not just that's present in our lives, God, but that is entrenched into our lives to the point that we begin to cover it up. We begin to hide it, Lord God, but it separates us from you, God. And for your child, separation is not acceptable. God, for one who is truly saved, to not be in close communion with you is not comfortable, Lord God. God, my prayer is that if there's anyone in your house this morning who has gotten so comfortable with a distant relationship with you that you would move them to their knees this morning. That they would confess with their mouth, God, I'm the one who's fallen short. I'm the reason I'm not as close to you as I once was. I'm the reason I don't have the joy that I once had. God, I confess my sin to you. God, purge me and cleanse me. God, restore to me the joys, my bones. Though they are broken, God, let them hear forgiveness and rejoice. Cleanse us, God. For it's in your holy name that we pray. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.